So this morning we finish our sort of fall, early, I guess just fall, uh, series looking at uh, the life of David. We've done six or seven or eight messages or so, and this morning we're going to conclude this short study at the life of, life of King David. And starting next week, we're going to be looking uh, at our Advent series for four weeks. And the Advent series is called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And one of our uh, traditions or um, habits or patterns as a church, as the gathering church, is to spend the Advent season, the month of December, those four Sundays, uh, in, a, in, a, in a season of reflection. And to ask the question, uh, have we grown more uh, Christ-like in the last year? How has the love of God and the grace of God that's given to us in Jesus, how has it changed us in the last year? And the, the, the lens whereby we're going to be looking through that this year is through this idea called the emotional life of Jesus. And uh, largely that's based on an essay that was written by B.B. Warfield about 150 years ago called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it's, it can be found online. It's a really long essay. It's like 100 pages, I think, so it's basically a book. Uh, it's found in a compendium called uh, The Work of Christ by B.B. Warfield, which, Paul, you have my copy for the last couple years, so I got another one. That's yours, brother. Um, so you can borrow a copy from Paul if you would like to read that essay. It's starting next week. Um, so when we, one of my, I guess it's one of my favorite parts of coming home from vacation. One of my favorite parts of coming home from vacation, after being gone for maybe camping for a week or two, is to walk in the door and take a big whiff and find out how my house smells to the rest of you guys. Because when you're living in your house all the time, it just, it just smells like your house. But when you leave for a week or two and you come home, you're going, that's how our house smells? I can't believe people come over here. So there is a familiarity that you have to the smell of your house. This morning, we're going to be looking something in David, and there's a temptation to have a familiarity to this topic that we can become inoculated to it. And there's a word that we talk about all the time. And that word is repentance. And I'd suggest to us that sometimes that word can become, we can become inoculated to it. We can become so familiar with it that we don't actually consider what it means practically in our lives. And so this morning we're going to look at this last study in the life of David, of David and Bathsheba, this infamous text in scripture, and we're going to be looking at the doctrine of repentance. So I'm going to read to us a large portion of scripture this morning. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read all of chapter 11, that's 27 verses. And in chapter 12, I'm going to read up through verse 15. And then we're actually going to go over to Psalm 51, and we're going to read um, at least four verses in Psalm 51. So if you'd like to sit back and, and, and listen to this, this, this wonderful, uh, wonderfully written narrative, its content is, is a bit jarring at times. But the way that the narrative is written is, is, truly, is truly a work of art. So I'll, I'll try to read it in such a way that, that tells the story well. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. 
that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, who's his general, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew they were the valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? the son of Jerushabeth, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall Some of the king's servants are also dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did, had done, displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because of the thing that he did and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you to your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you to the, the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is God's word for us this morning. Quick prayer. Father, thank you for this word. We're grateful for this text. We're grateful that you've revealed things to us in this text that apply to us now 3,000 years later. Would you help us, Lord? Help us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of looking at this text. Help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points this morning, three points this morning, the what, the when, the how, the what, the when, the how. So we just read this long account, this infamous story of David and Bathsheba. And as I said at the beginning, it's a story that's written so beautifully, uh, particularly you notice it in the Hebrew. There's many just plays of words and, and, and so on in the text. For example, in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out, that, that phrase, kings go out, matches the same phrase about David in verse 2, when David arose from his couch. 
So all the kings are rising and going out, and David is rising up from a nice afternoon nap. It says in verse 11, 2, that David is looking down from the, from the, from this, from the, from the balcony of the palace upon Bathsheba. And it'll say later in verse 24, something scathing, that the archers looked down on Uriah to strike him. It says that the lamb in Nathan's parable would eat and drink and lie with the poor man. And this is precisely what David tried to get Uriah to do, to eat, to drink, and to lie down. It was said that the rich man will experience a fourfold loss, four lambs. And commentators all suggest, mostly suggest, that David will experience the loss of his four children. The baby, Tamar, Amnon, and Absalom. We also note in the text that it was far more egregious and far more, um, far more um, murderous than David's plan initially intended. Because, of course, Joab realizes he can't just send a bunch of men forward and tell all of them to come back so that just the one man, Uriah, is murdered. He has to send in a whole group of people into harm's way. It'd be too obvious otherwise if there was a plan to kill him. But what's the point of this whole narrative? The whole point of the narrative is found in chapter 12, verse 13. It's the linchpin verse. It's the, it's the whole bag of potatoes, if you will. Verse 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The whole point of our message this morning and our study this morning is to see that David sees the grievousness of his own sin and he repents. He repents. He turns from it. Sounds pretty simple, we may say. It may sound simple enough, but very few people know how to do it very effectively and very few people do it very often. But I would suggest to us this morning, and I think this text is suggesting to us this morning, is that repentance is the secret to actually changing. That the secret to actually changing, the way that we actually change and our hearts begin to, to change and we become less of the person that we desire, don't desire to be, is through this vehicle, through this means of repentance. You know, many, many think that repentance simply means to turn from sin, but it's more than to just simply turn from sin. The most basic definition of repentance is to change one's mind. It's to change one's mind. To turn from sin is, 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 is too little just an act of the will, but to change one's mind is to begin to desire and to begin to change one's heart. See, not simply behavior modification, but a change, a begin and in changing the way that we actually think about things. And what's at stake here is really a life and death kind of situation. Paul will describe it like this in Romans chapter 8. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying that the deeds of the body need to be killed. They need to be slayed. They need to be put to death. 
And in commenting on this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, John Piper says this. He says, what are the deeds of the body in Romans 13 that need to be slayed? He says, they are the deeds that we are about to do prompted by our sin or our lust or unrighteousness. Probably the most helpful Christian thinker on Romans chapter 8, verse 13, and maybe all of the history of the church was a 17th century pastor named John Owen. And he wrote one book on that entire verse. It's called The Mortification of Sin. And to us, mortify oftentimes means uh, embarrassed or or something like that. But but what Owen meant is what Romans 8.13 meant. To mortify is to kill sin. So the title of his book was The Killing of Sin. Doesn't really sound like a pop evangelical bestseller sitting next to your best life now. But Owen's famous description of repentance was be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So a lot is on the line. In a sense, we're kind of just wrapping up pretty obviously that's what the what is. The what is repentance. It's to begin to change one's mind. It's to be mortifying, to be killing, to be slaying the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And we're going to see, and I think we're going to see here in a moment, that David's life does not begin to change until he learns to repent. His life doesn't begin to change until he learns to repent. And I would suggest to us the same is absolutely true. That our lives will not begin to change until we learn to actually repent. So that's the what, pretty basic. Point two, the when. The when, the when of repentance. When to repent. It has been said, maybe just by me, that that no one wakes up in the morning and simply says to themselves, today I think I'll have an affair. No one wakes up in the morning, kind of does their morning stretch and says, I think I know what I'll do today. I will go cheat on my wife. Rather, our lives are a summation of thousands and thousands of small decisions. That's what our lives are made up of. Think about, think about the mechanics of what leads someone to this point. Small decisions to not look away from a man or a woman, but to lust. Small decisions to harbor resentment toward a spouse. Small decisions to feel subtly bad for ourselves. Small decisions to allow pride to creep in and lead us to think that we deserve more. Small decisions to allow ourselves to be discontent. Small decisions to not forgive. And more and more and more. No one wakes up one day and simply decides to have an affair. Rather, it is the habits of the heart. It's the habits of the heart that subtly mold us into the person we are. And those habits are the ones that will suddenly destroy us. The habits of the heart subtly mold us into the person we are. And those habits will suddenly destroy us. 
And we see this gradual change in David. I've already highlighted it's 11 verse, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, but David remained at Jerusalem. Remember, David is the great warrior king. The previous three chapters in this text are absolutely crucial to understand what's going on here. I'm really trying to fight this. <laughs> the previous three chapters are all about David's victories over all Israel's enemies. For example, one, one snippet, you could just look at chapter 8, 9, 10 and just see David is just ravaging his enemies. And one, one uh, kind of... Uh, verse that captures it all is 8.14. And it says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Wherever David's going, he's, he's receiving victory. But now the text is telling us that David stayed home. Everyone is out in battle, but David stays home. See, what's, what's, what's interesting here is that leadership positions are often very deadly because of this reason. On the one hand, leadership is hard. The final responsibility for the group, the tribe, the church, the company, the country, the family, the platoon, the shift, ultimately falls on the leader. People problems fall on the leader. Money problems fall on the leader. Organizational problems fall on the leader. Relational problems fall on the leader. The weight of these things fall on the leader. Imagine the weight of being king. But there are good reasons to want to be a leader, and one is to care for people, you know, to have a, diff- you have a different view- vision of what the future could be. But here's why it's deadly. Leadership can be deadly because it's also attended with privileges. It's attended with privileges. I know of no better description of this tension between the challenge of leadership and the challenge of attending privileges than a speech that was given by Vaclav Havel. He was the last president of Czechoslovakia and subsequently he was the first president of the Czech Republic in 1993. And in 1991 he received this prestigious award and he gave some remarks on leadership. And the section I'm going to read to you is a section where he's talking about the advantages that power brings. And he gives several examples. Here's a few. He says, It would make no sense whatever for a government minister to miss an important cabinet discussion of law that will influence the country for decades to come simply because he has a toothache and he has to wait all afternoon in the dentist's office until he returns. So, in the interest of the country, he arranges to be treated by a special dentist, one that he doesn't have to wait for. Another example. It would certainly not make sense for a politician to miss an important state meeting with a foreign colleague simply because he'd been held up in traffic. So the government provides a car and a chauffeur. It would make certainly no sense for a politician to waste valuable time sweating over a stove and cooking an official meal for a counterpart from abroad so he has a personal cook and waiters to do it for him. It would certainly make no sense for a president to, 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 to go from butcher shop to butcher shop like a normal homemaker in search of meat good enough to offer without shame to an important guest. So special deliveries of supplies are arranged for prominent people and their cooks. He says, to sum up, I go to a special doctor. I don't have to drive a car. 
And my driver does not need to lose his temper while going through Prague at a snail pace because we have sirens. I don't need to cook. I don't shop for myself. I don't even dial my own telephone when I want to talk to someone. In other words, I find myself in the world of privileges, exceptions, perks. I find myself in the world of VIPs who gradually lose track of how much butter costs, how to make a cup of coffee, how to drive a car, and how to place a telephone call. I find myself on the very threshold of the world of fat cats that I have criticized my entire life. David had got to a point where he thought he deserved it. He was self-deceived. The position of office had crept into his heart and he began to form habits that ultimately led to his demise. The challenge of leadership and the privilege of leadership was lost on David. Listen to Havel's conclusion. He says, politics, therefore, ought to be carried on by people who are vigilant, who are sensitive to the ambiguous promise of self-affirmation that comes with it. I have no idea whether I am such a person. I only know that I ought to be because I've accepted this office. I have no idea, he says, whether I am such a person. And that is exactly right. The level of self-awareness that Havel has The level of distrust in his own view of himself is paramount for every leader and for every Christian. His own distrust with his perception of himself is what David was actually lacking. So what's the solution? If the challenge is that a guy like Vaclav Havel, who's way smarter than probably any of us in here, says, I don't know if this is the kind of person that I actually am. I know I ought be. I don't know if I'm being deceived by the accoutrements of power. I don't know. The answer, my friends, is Nathan. Nathan comes to David when David is completely self-deceived. The parable of the small lamb infuriates David, but he has no idea that the parable is actually about him. So what's the principle? What's the point? The principle is that every single one of us needs Nathans in our lives. The answer to this point, the when, the when of repentance is when the Nathans come into our lives. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's the principle here. So I must ask you at this point in our, in our, in our sermon here, do you have Nathans in your life do you see the potential for self-deception in your own heart do you have the courage to say like Vaclav Havel I have no idea whether I am such a person I remember this reality became so vivid to me when my second son was born and that's actually why we named him Nathan it was a period of my life that was attended by being confronted by friends and experiencing faithful wounds and so much so that I wanted to thank God and honor God for the value of Nathan's in my life so I named my son Nathan 
And look, sometimes the Nathans in our lives come to us and it just takes a long time. Sometimes the faithful wounds of a friend are to repeatedly, gently, persistently come to us. It might take a day in one conversation. It might take a few weeks. It might take a few months. And in some circumstances and in some instances, it actually takes a few years of gently prodding, being faithful, coming to a brother or a sister in love. And unfortunately, I feel like I've been the kind of person that did not get the you are the man and completely just break down and repent. But it's taken weeks, months, and sometimes even even years. Last week, we asked the congregation, I asked the congregation to fast and pray for the elders because we were going to go into a meeting last Tuesday and we were going to we were going to be talking about reconciling some of our relationships with one another. And I, and I thank God for that meeting last Tuesday and, and some of the progress that was made. And I'm hopeful, and I think all the elders are hopeful for, for future progress. You know, relationships, they're messy. They take time. Trust takes a long time to rebuild But in the days since that meeting, I was reminded by a faithful friend that, again, as the leader, if there's a culture on the team or there's a culture in the the, the church that's displeasing to me, then I am the man, the one on whom the responsibility finally and ultimately falls. And so it's been a reflective few days around Thanksgiving, thinking about this text, thinking about that meeting, thinking about faithful friends, and realizing that the bullseye has got to be on me if there's a culture among the elders or a culture even in the church that we long to see change. And you know this, but the same is true with you. If there's a, if there's a culture in your family or there's a culture in your business, there's a culture among your kids, a culture at the, at the office, whatever it may be that's displeasing to you or, or unsavory to you, then two things. First, ask the Nathans in your life for insight. Ask the Nathans in your life for insight. And if you don't have Nathans, then find some. Unfortunately, building that kind of relationship does take time. But it's worth it. I should say also that Nathan is not the only one who, who sees the, 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 the massive hypocrisy and sin in David's life. The text actually, if you read it closely, the text actually implies that, that maybe everyone sort of knew. Uh, but you know, at least particular, the messenger knew in 1124. Because this whole elaborate story that Joab told the messenger to give, he doesn't give it. He doesn't tell the story about the woman dropping the stone that killed Abimelech and all that kind of stuff. He just gets right down to brass tacks and says what the king wants to hear. Verse 24, then the archer shot at your servants as well. So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He just gets right to it. He knows what he wants to hear. He knows that he, he's, just looking for, he's just looking for the goods and he, and he gives it to him. Robert Alter 
Hebrew commentator commenting on 11.24 that I just read to us says, the messenger has divined the real point of Joab's instructions all too well. He realizes that what David above all wants to hear is the news of Uriah's death. And rather than risk the whole outburst, indicated by the perspective dialogue invented by Joab with the reference to the woman who killed Abimelech, the messenger hastens to conclude his report before the king can react, and he mentions Uriah's death. Thus, the narrative makes palpable the inexorable public knowledge of David's crime. Because here is the point. Let me just crystallize it for us of point two. At the habits of the heart that will kill us most are the ones that we can't see. The habits of the heart that seem to do the most damage in our lives are the ones that we can't see. So that's the when. The when is when the Nathans come. So we looked at the what, it is repenting. The when is when the Nathans come. But the how, how does it look? And this is why we went to Psalm 51, so we can look at some of the how. Look at, before we turn to Psalm 51, just look at uh, 1213. This is the beginning of it. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And if we flip over now to Psalm 51, as we read, the superscript of this text says that when Nathan, the pro, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We get a fuller picture here, a fuller description of, of, of David's repentance. So let's look at, all my comments are actually just going to be on verse 4. Three insights on verse 4, and then we'll move to a close. The first thing that we see in this text is the standard. And the standard is against you and you only. Against you and you only is the standard. We live in a world of moral confusion. 50 years ago, there was a generally agreed upon standard for what is right and wrong, and that standard was Judeo-Christian morality, morality that's found in the Bible. But now we live in a starkly post-Christian era where Judeo-Christian morality is not embraced by most in society. Instead, we have this standard of radical individualism, the moral standard uh, for you to be whoever you want to be. And immorality is to impose anything on another human being for doing what they want to do. The problem with this that we've said again and again and again and again is that it logically and actually practically breaks down. It, it breaks down because inevitably our desires are going to come into conflict with another human being's desires. Radical individualism actually really only works for those that are in power, the elites, and the the ruling class. Radical individualism is actually a subtle kind of suppression because it forces the will and desires of one person upon another. And a really dramatic example, we can simply say that, look, Hitler was following his heart. He was doing what he wanted to do. Another example, we can just look at the the horrific sexual harassment stories that we've heard in the last just six weeks from Hollywood. Stories of of men doing what they want to do. It's it's ironic, though, how this this gospel of, of radical individualism begins to turn itself on its own head. 
There's a very interesting article this weekend in the Wall Street Journal by Peggy Noonan addressing some of this stuff. And, and she makes a comment towards the end of the article that, that the sexual liberation of the 1960s caused men and women to view sexual activity less seriously. And she closes with this remark. She says, once you separate sex from its seriousness, once you separate it from the life-giving, life-changing potential, men will just come to see it as another want, a desire like any other. Once they think that, then they'll see sexual violations as less serious, less charged, less full of weight. They'll be able more easily to rationalize. The doctrine of radical individualism and the doctrine of free sexual expression begins to actually turn itself on its head. What was actually liberating, as it sounded to women, we've now seen on the other side of it is actually oppressive. It's violent. It's wicked. It's evil. But the standard in this text is the law of God. We must start here. Against you and you only. God is the standard of righteousness. Not your heart, not my heart, not what is legislated, not Supreme Court rulings. God and God alone is judge and lawgiver. So repentance must start there. But second, it must be complete. I have sinned, David says. Notice, no equivocation, no self-justification, but full responsibility. I have sinned. Look, most of us don't tolerate apologies with equivocation from others, but we, we often tolerate it pretty easily with ourselves. We can't stand it when someone says, I'm sorry, but however we excuse ourselves. Two examples briefly here. You know, one of the, one of the ways that, you know, that Vanessa and I determined early on with our children, and we got... We just had good mentors when we first had kids. Is that we wouldn't excuse their behavior because of attending circumstances. We wouldn't excuse their behavior because of, because of circumstantial reasons. All the way down to even things like teething. Teething or, or kids being too tired. It was unacceptable. I mean, we, we, there was compassion for the child. You know, they can have some Tylenol or whatever. But that doesn't mean they can sit there and just scream and fuss and cry. Because of attending circumstances. But I see this, and I think we see this far too often in marriage counseling. Because it's, 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 it's very easy to get at the heart of things at marriage counseling by, by looking, at, looking at one or, or of the other spouses and say, are you being the kind of husband that you need to be? Inevitably, the answer is no. But... No, but she isn't either. And vice versa. Are you being the kind of wife, the kind of woman that God's called you to be, that this man needs? No, but, I mean, he's... Until we come to a full stop and take full responsibility for our own actions, I have sinned. No equivocation. No circumstantial reasons. No attending circumstances. Just, I have sinned. I'm wrong. Full responsibility. Then and only then are our marriages and are your marriages begin, begin to be rebuilt and improve. 
Because if both of us, if both of you are continually going in this yes, but, no, but, it's never going to work. So acknowledge the standard, repent fully and completely, and third, repent of motives. For David says, I've done what is evil in your sight. There are at least two kinds of repentance. There's, there's godly sorrow and there's worldly lip- repentance. Let's call worldly so- sorrow a, a fear of consequences. A fear of consequences. This is what, what, what people have called over the years the repentance of Cain. Cain was sorry for the consequences of sin. There's a fear that the consequences will be unbearable, uncomfortable, they'll be too much, whatever they may be. And we, we see it really easily in little kids, right? That when they, when they know, that, uh, that, they know that, that the rod is coming, then they kind of snap into action real quick, okay? Because the fear of consequences is coming. There's not this fear that, you know, they've, they've, they've violated God's law or they've disobeyed their parents. There's a fear of consequences that's, that's looming. But we do it too. But we do it too. We repent for a fear of consequences, a worldly sorrow, fear of losing, our, of, of losing our spouse back to marriage counseling. And I, I've, I've seen this before too. You know, w- wives that, that come and say, you know, he's, he's too angry, he, he, he's frivolous with the money, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll change, I'll change, I'll change, I'll change, I'll change. And so they, you know, they, 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 they make up and they, and they, they get back together and, and so on. But it was just a fear of consequences. There hasn't been a repentance, an actual repentance for the motives of the heart there hasn't been a repentance for actually a, a, a violation of God's law and standard. And so we're just back on a repeat cycle till the next time. Until we learn that it is out of the evil of our own heart that our mouth speaks. We can't actually walk this path of repentance. It's absolutely critical and absolutely essential for us to not just repent for fear of consequences or even to simply repent of the action, but to repent of the motive, the evil intent of the heart. If we just repent of the action, it'll just happen again. But to begin to get down into the heart of things, when we talk about intentions, when we talk about the will, when we talk about why we do what we do, we talk about the heart, those things need to be addressed. Those things need to be actually repented of. Well, let me try to bring us to a close here by raising a potential objection and trying to apply it to us. You may be asking yourselves, how can, how can David say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Because that's not objectively true. I mean, he's, he's sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the people of Israel. Here's why it's helpful. And here's why it's theologically true. Martin Luther, in commenting on the Ten Commandments, said that all sin is the breaking of the first commandment. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods. Luther said, all other sin does not happen without first breaking that commandment. Because what Luther is addressing is that our heart and our motives, when we sin, are finding another functional savior, a functional hope, a functional identity, a functional whatever it is, outside from the love of God. 
And it's making an idol out of those things. So if David were to say, against the law of God I have sinned, or against Israel I have sinned, or against Uriah or Bathsheba I have sinned, it still ultimately wouldn't get to the heart of things. It wouldn't get to the center of things. Because the center of things is that at the end of the day, what David needs and what I need and what you need is for our heart to find their actual functional rest in the love of God. See, David's repentance, listen to his language in the beginning of Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It's not primarily the fear of judgment, but it's primarily the feeling of the loss of the steadfast love of God that leads David to repentance. That's what Paul will tell us in Romans. That God's kindness is what's meant to lead us to repentance. That's what we were singing about all morning. That the love of God in Christ should make the things of earth, should make the things of sin just grow pale to us and non-desirous to us. And we should see that all of our sin is first and foremost against God because all of our sin is functionally breaking of the first commandment. That's how he can say it. He can say it's the steadfast love of God, that relentless love that will chase us again and after us and follow even the Davids who are the king of Israel, who are committing adultery and, and, and murdering you know, his own mighty men. The steadfast love of God even pursues him. And in those moments of functionally breaking the first commandment, he's losing, in a sense, that fellowship and the love of God that's freely offered to him. One more Luther quote. Luther says, The love of God does not seek but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God loves failures, fools, and weaklings. Therefore, sinners are not loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. The love of God creates. The love of God pours into David's heart and brings about this sense of repentance to see that all of his sin is against God because all of his sin is actually trying to get away from God and away from the hope and the comfort and the joy that he has in God. Look, Jesus said to the woman at the well, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say sin no more and then I won't condemn you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. And all the punishment, all these things that David speaks of in Psalm 51, he says in verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence. The son of God was cast away from the presence of the father on the cross. Verse 14 says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. A son of God cried that he might be delivered from the wrath to come. He cried on the cross to be delivered. But he was not delivered. Verse 9, David says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The Lord Jesus was blotted out because of our iniquities. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jesus the God-man was the true second Adam. Not brought forth in iniquity. Brought forth by being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never did sin 
never sinned utter his mouth, never lied, never betrayed, never scorned. And at the end of his life, he was cut off for our sake. So that we can be like David. And we can say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. Help us to be a people, Lord, of repentance. Help us to see that it is the love of God that brings the most conviction. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the Lord's table this morning. We celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. That his body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian and you've, uh, you've repented of your sins and you trust in Jesus alone, you've been baptized, and you're welcome to partake of this table with us. You can come up row by row and take the elements back to your seat and we will partake corporately.